0: a battle wages in the Houtman's Abrolius, between the attacking red-clad mutineers of Geronimus' making and the stout and prepared defenders under the leadership of Hayes. When the sail appears, and everybody has seen it, the fighting abates very quickly, as both sides rush to be the first to reach the rescue ship. It is a VOC ship, the type known as a Yacht, and it is called Zardarm. It was originally a part of the same fleet as Batavia. On board stands Francisco Pelsart, the upper merchant and commander of the fleet, who had abandoned the survivors of the wreck three and a half months earlier, in order to try to find water and eventually sail to Fort Batavia and return with a ship. This, he had done. Well, actually... It had been Captain Jacobzoon who had achieved the remarkable feat of sailing over 3,000 kilometres to the Dutch trading colony in an astounding 39 days. When the longboat arrived at Fort Batavia, they were met by the stern and very unimpressed authority of Jan Pieterszoon Kuhn, the formidable Governor-General of the Indies, and the embodiment of every terrifying school principal you ever had, mixed together between a large hat and a pointy moustache. Kuhn had been very unenamoured with Pelsart's tale, considering that one-fifth of the VOC's capital had just been lost under the waves. In fact, he was generally just really pissed off. Pelsart here reported his suspicions that a mutiny had been afoot aboard the Batavia, although it had never actually come to fruition due to the wrecking of the ship. Peterson Kuhn, in response to this, imprisoned Captain Jakobzon, just to reward him for his unbelievable feat of seamanship, and for good measure, he imprisoned his mistress Zvoncha as well. They will both disappear from the record at this point, and nobody knows what became of them. Kuhn also had Jan Evertzsson, the High Bossin, Executed for his role in the attack on Lucretia, before the wreck, he then commanded Pelsart to take the ship Sardam and return immediately to salvage the goods that he had lost. Oh, and if there's anyone still alive, Pelsart should probably pick them up as well. Returning to the site of the wreck took a lot longer than the longboat's journey north had. Pelsart was no naval man and it was difficult for him to ascertain the exact location, working with the captain of the Zardarm. And so, they had general navigational issues. Which is to say, they got lost. This added about an extra month to the time that the survivors had to, well, survive. And we all know exactly what that extra month meant for some of those awaiting his return. Just a whole lot of awful and not a whole lot of surviving. By the time the Tsardam arrives, the mutineers are at battle and under the leadership of Walter Lohs, who seems to lack the conviction or maybe the high delusion of Geronimus. He sees the sail and instantly feels that the game is up and that all of them are now due to be hung for treachery. Little Jan Pelgrim, however, is not giving up the ghost. He rallies enough men to get in their little sloop and make their way to the rescue ship, determined to carry out their original plan of seizing the Yacht and going a-pirating. Yar! They quickly set off to row the several miles to the Zardam, hoping to reach it before Hayes and his men do. Viba Hayes and his troop, they have been concealing their little yawl in a bay on the north side of the island. From the midst of the battle, they must traipse several miles through the thick and prickly shrubbery that covers the high islands before they can reach it, all the while hoping that they are making quicker time than the mutineers on their crappy little sloop. This is right after having waged battle for the last few hours, of course. As they make their way, they can see in the distance to their right, the murderous gang moving slowly up the coast. Obviously intent on spinning some fabricated tale of self-woe should they reach the authorities aboard the Zardam first. The race is on. Hayes knows that if he can reach their yawl before the mutineers round the coast, they will reach Pelsart first, as they will only have a short distance to row. He rallies his group to keep going, don't give up, and so they keep going, crashing their way onwards. The mutineers row, and heave, and pull, and inch their way, while the defenders stumble and harry through the dense undergrowth. Who will get to the rescue ship first? Who will be able to tell their story to whomever it is aboard, and so set the framework for how the VOC dishes out its authority? Pelsart disembarks the Sardam, stepping onto its own yawl, and making towards the High Island. He has seen smoke rising from the fires so knows that there are still survivors there, but confusingly, he can't see any people on the beach, awaiting rescue. His men row him on towards the beach, and as he looks out with curiosity, he wonders what is going on. Stepping onto the sand, Pelsart looks around him at the bleak island. It is then, as he gazes up at the plumes of smoke rising not far away, that a small boat, full of men, appears around the coastline. They have spotted him and have turned their bearing his way. He exhales loudly. So here are the survivors, or at least some of them. These men, though, are not casually coming to meet him, but they are in a serious rush. Second by second, they get closer to Pelsard, standing on the beach, and a moment passes where he considers that they might have violent intentions towards him, Such is their serious look of intent and their hasty approach. He orders his men, be prepared with their arms. As soon as it is close enough, a single man jumps off the boat and begins wading through the shallows as quickly as he can. As soon as he is close enough, Pelsart recognises him. It is Viva Hayes, and he's got a story to tell. Welcome. Welcome. To stuff what you tell me. This is our mutinous series, The Unfortunate Voyage of the Batavia, Episode 8 Living of the Law of the Land. This episode is brought to you by torture, which means it is not admissible. But hey, when did that ever stop anyone? <laughs> The last year has been the toughest and the worst of our life. We became a sailor out of desperation to move out of the poverty that our life had descended into previously. We'd done it with fantasies of becoming rich in the exotic lands of the East. Knowing it would be tough, we'd figured it would also be worth it. The voyage at first had seemed like it would be the hardest part. A way of living that one had to get used to. Difficulties that gave starker relief to the pleasures of shore leave, the rare times when we could be free from the ship and our duties. In fact, in our time as a sailor aboard the Batavia, it has been the small moments of joy that have kept us going. The first fresh water in Sierra Leone, following a month of drinking from the stagnant and algae infused water stocks on board. What a glorious half-minute that was. Likewise, being able to go to the toilet on the beach in Cape Town, squatting alone on the moonlit sand a mile away from the ship and the 200 other men we'd been sharing a toilet with, looking up at the incredibly starry sky. It was the greatest poo we've ever had. But of course, we now know that the voyage was like a calm breeze, compared to the stormy ordeal of the shipwreck and our abandonment on the islands of hell. All the things we've seen, done, and escaped from will remain with us forever, and that will be after we've begun to process it, which we have not yet. The weight of it all, however, does seem to crash down onto our shoulders the moment we realise that we have reached Commander Pelsart first. As our little yawl rounds the bend of the shoreline, and we tack towards him on the beach, Pelsart represents salvation, and a chance that perhaps our struggles are over. For the last five hours, we have been fighting, killing, avoiding being killed, then we ran through the scrub for nearly an hour, and completed the twisted, hectathlon of hell by rowing as powerfully as we possibly could in order to win the race against the mutineers, the race to control the truth of events. Had they reached Pelsard first, we have no doubt they would have painted us as the miscreant criminals. At last we can rest a moment, as we come within hailing distance of Pelsard, standing on the beach, and Hayes jumps off our boat and goes to meet him. We can still hear Hayes as he gets closer to the commander, he begins to shout the circumstances, advising Pelsart to return to the Tsardam as quickly as possible. There are murderous miscreants on their way. We watch the two men come together, and Hayes speaks for some time. He is likely giving out the shortest possible version of events that have transpired since Pelsart's departure. Pelsart doesn't seem to react very quickly. And for a very long time, the two men stand together, neither speaking. Pelsart has unlikely become more decisive or authoritative in the previous three and a half months. We see Hayes pointing back to the south of the island, where the battle had taken place, and then towards us on the yawl. Whatever he said sparks action, and both men begin to move quickly to return to their boats. When Hayes is aboard, He says that we are to fetch the captured prisoner, Geronimus, whilst Pelsart returns to the defensive protection of the Zardam. We are sure that these orders are exactly what action Hayes had suggested to Pelsart. Rest time's over. We turn around and we go to fetch Geronimus. As we roll away, we can see Pelsart's yawl heading back to the Zardam. Just as the whole scene begins to disappear from our view, We suddenly spot the little sloop, with its harried gang of mutineers, come rowing around the bend of the island shore. We are separated from them by about half a mile, and Hayes orders us to keep going, as we are tasked with our orders of collecting Geronimus. We hear later about what happened when the mutineers reached the Zardarm. Pelsart, who had only gotten back just in time, had demanded to know why they were armed, as he stood on the deck and stared down at them bobbing in the swell. The murderous gang had shouted back that they would explain why they were armed once they were aboard, obviously thinking Pelsart was as stupid as they clearly are. Pelsart is many things, but he's not an idiot. He responded by having the guns of the Zadam trained on the little sloop and gave the rebels no choice but to throw their rusty muskets and swords into the sea. Once aboard, they were immediately accosted and bound, and Pelsart felt vindicated by their behaviour that Viva Hayes had told a truthful version of events. There had been atrocities committed here. But more importantly, he was concerned that somebody had laid claim to the VOC property that had been salvaged or washed ashore. They had been wearing red cloth with gold trimming. Company property! He immediately interrogated one of the mutineers, Jan Hendrickson, who avoided torture by blubbing out a confession of his crimes that he had killed around 20 people. He insisted that it had been under the leadership of Geronimus that they had all acted. Geronimus had invested himself with utmost authority and had been backed up by his official counsel. Hendrickson also finally confirmed Pelsart's belief that a mutiny was being planned. His confession was the first that the commander heard, and included information that the captain, Geronimus, the high bosun, and others had all been plotting to seize the ship and murder all but about 120 people on board, thereafter to go, well, we know where this is going, but stuff it, to go, a pirating, yar. Pelsart inquired about the goods, and was told that everything salvaged was kept in geronimus's great tent when we arrive back at the zadam we bring geronimus aboard as a prisoner Pelsart has followed protocol and so set up a ship's council led by himself and including the zadam's captain and the high bosun. it is so difficult to know how geronimus convinced so many people to do such atrocious things for sure, his greatest weapon is his glib tongue. Weaving words into manipulative tales and lies under interrogation, he pleads that it was he being forced to act by other men. He lays blame for the entire course of events on members of his inner circle, David Zevank and Konrad van Hausen, who had forced into marriage the predikant's daughter. These two men's bodies now conveniently lay below the blood-stained beach, they having been amongst the three men whose throats were opened by Viba Hayes. Geronimus insists that when it comes to any plan of mutiny, he was also being coerced under threat of his life. Collapse in a miserable heap on a stool before those assembled on the deck of the Zardarm which is the ship's council and those of us bearing witness, Geronimus is, for the most part, a pathetic figure. He has been kept in a limestone pit for the last two weeks, under guard, and having insults, abuse, spit, and other waste cast down upon him by all of us defenders. Yet, when he talks, he still holds his head high, and he looks the council members in the eye. His voice remains unwavering and confident. Knowing that he is fabricating everything he says, it is remarkable at how adept he is at lying, and how convincing he may be to someone who does not know the truth behind his bullshit. Pelsart is not that someone, however. Hayes, and also our testimony, as well as basic common sense, means that Pelsart knows that Geronimus is holding the truth back. It will take time and more persuasive interrogation to get his hands on that truth. But get his hands on it, he will. He orders Geronimus be sent to Hell, the brig on board VOC ships, which is a cramped and dark hole in the very bottom of the ship's bow. Pelsart retires to his cabin to plan proceedings, and we defenders return to our camp on the island. A confession and a punishment of Geronimus and everybody involved is extremely important to Pelsart. This is not just in a humane, justice driven sense, it is also in a professional sense. Every one of us in this situation answers to somebody else, some higher authority. In the eyes of Pelsart's Ultimate authority being Jan Peterson Kuhn and the Gentleman 17 of the VOC, he has stuffed up majorly here. He is not a brave survivor of a tragic ordeal, but a manager who has overseen a massive loss of capital and has one chance to devise a solution. If he wants to save his career, his management of the interrogation, trial, and punishment of the mutineers, will be a deciding point. Firstly, he needs to be able to lay blame on somebody else's shoulders, and redeem himself within the context of the whole story. Secondly, he needs to recover as much of that capital as possible. The following day, Pelsart arrives on our island, with a group of soldiers from the Zadam. He and Hayes converse for a while before Hayes picks out ten of our men, his best soldiers, who are given muskets and swords. Being re-armed with more than homemade weapons, these men and Hayes then go with Pelsa to Batavia's graveyard. When they return, it is after having accosted, rounded up, and taken the remaining mutineers on the island prisoner. They have been left on Traitor's Island under guard, although it is not the greatest prison, given that A good swimmer could make a run for it. We suppose that there's nowhere really to run to. Pelsart also begins ordering plans to be made for the salvation of any treasure chests and goods under the waves. That evening, we are part of a contingent sent to row him out to survey the scene of the Batavia wreck. The water is reasonably calm, and several large parts of the ship, including two cannons, can actually be seen underwater, with one particular piece of the aft bulwark actually now protruding above the waves, marking almost the exact point where the collision between ship and reef occurred. Pelsart, though, is obviously frustrated. These are choppy waters at the best of times, and there have been storms of late. It will take a rare calm day for anything of significance to be found and retrieved. We must rely on the elements for the commander's most important task to be completed. While he waits one eye on the conditions, Pelsart arranges for the interrogation and the sentencing of the mutineers. Eleven days pass between Pelsart's arrival and the sentencing of the mutineers. The whole process, of course, unfolds according to Dutch law. For a death sentence to be passed a free will confession must be obtained from the perpetrator. The challenge before Pelsart and the ship's council is no small one. Although they have the initial confession of Jan Hendrickson, as well as the story of Viva Hayes and We Defenders, the culprits are sure to weave various webs of confusion and mistale, each trying to preserve for himself whatever respite from punishment that he can find. We learn a lot about the law as we hang around on the outskirts of these proceedings. We and others from the loyal defenders are given various tasks, ranging from fetching this or that prisoner, securing driftwood to build scaffolding, on which the condemned will eventually be hung, attempts at salvage operations, or even just catching and preparing food and water. It looks like there will be no hurry to leave this godforsaken place. And that is frustrating. But it's difficult not to marvel that such procedures could be organized and followed so rigorously in such an outlandish situation. Making it more outlandish, we realize, is that there are definitely members of Geronimus's followers who are not amongst the imprisoned. When we walk past the proceedings one day, taking place on the beach on Batavia's graveyard, tables and chairs set up under an official-looking VOC tent, we can't believe that the scribe, sitting by Pelsart's side and taking recordings of the proceedings, is no other than Salomon Deschamps. Fair enough, he was Pelsart's scribe prior to the wreck, but he had also spent two months with his head firmly positioned up Geronimus' ass, as far as we could tell. We are pretty sure he also killed someone. One by one, the prisoners are brought before Pelsat and the council. The men who are aboard the Sardam are those being tried, whilst the other mutineers are held on Traitor's Island. They are quizzed about their version of events. If they contradict themselves, or another, or give an unsatisfactory answer, they are tortured. The method is simple, but effective. Effective at making men suffer horribly and effective at making them say anything to make that suffering stop. We find out from an old sailor that the method is known as the water cure, and we have never heard of it until now. Some of the collected timber has been nailed together to form a frame, wide and tall enough for a man to be spread-eagled and tied securely to it. Then, with the frame laying on the ground, so that he is then bound with his face to the sky, a cloth is wrapped around the man's face, under his chin, and over the crown of his head. It is wrapped and wrapped, building up as a weird cloth frame or collar around the man's face. The end effect is that it is like a cheap bucket, able to catch and hold water to a level high enough that It will submerge his mouth and nose. A separate cloth is wound up and shoved down the throat of the, um, to struggle to find more synonyms for people being held and tortured, shoved down the throat of the interviewee, which then forces his mouth open. Then, as he lays in this grotesque position, water is poured onto his face from a height, The only way someone can avoid drowning from this, and avoiding drowning is a pretty natural reaction, is by drinking as much of the water as possible, and so lowering the level caught in this weird cloth face bucket. The severity of the torture is increased and decreased by pouring in more or less water. After the man has drunk many times more water than a human should at once, The irony of that particular circumstance not being lost on us, given that everybody on this island, including the mutineers, would have dreamt of having too much water to drink in months gone by. After this, the man is untired from the frame, and beaten until he vomits. After he has relieved himself of many times more water than any human should vomit at once, the process is repeated, causing the man's body to bloat absurdly. We see some of the men who rain terror upon so many of us after they have been subjected to this whole ordeal. Their guts and their eyes bulge, along with their cheeks, and they have an unnatural colour about them, like their veins are screaming. This is most definitely torture. We see it on their faces and we hear it in the screams of those being questioned. Hundreds of years later, it will be decided that if only the interrogators had put a cloth sheet over the man's face, and then called it waterboarding, turns out that's not torture. Some confess more freely than others, without torture, and with varying levels of remorse and penance, even with a fairly open confession, however, Pelsat and the Council they must know the full truth. So each mutineer is, to varying degrees, put to torture, so that their sentences can be as informed as possible. An issue with this, of course, is that confessions under torture are not admissible. Therefore, the tortured man must freely give a recount of his confession that he gave under torture within 24 hours of first giving it. This is, ultimately, what causes such delay in the Council's proceedings. From bits we see and hear, plus what we get to discuss with the other free men amongst us, Geronimus confesses and recants his testimony about five times. On one day in particular, we are sent to and from Traitor's Island several times, fetching mutineers whose confessions have been contradicted by Geronimus's lies. It is only eventually, after every protestation has been checked and double-checked, the Pelsart finally manages to achieve a free will confession from the pharmacist from Friesland. He, whose actions, divined by God, have caused the death of around 125 people. We heard that once he had decided to confess and avoid further torture, he'd had no compunction in throwing his followers under the horse cart. Finally, on Friday the 28th of September, 1629, everybody is assembled on Batavia's graveyard to hear the verdict and sentences as agreed upon by the council. Geronimus is first. With a curtness that is tinged in disgust, as he looks Geronimus' way, the commander announces that Geronimus has misbehaved himself gruesomely. He goes on to say something about how even... Moors and Turks never treated anybody as badly as Geronimus has treated those amongst the survivors, which is something we don't really understand or know how it's relevant to what's been going on here. Pelsar goes on to say that we must avoid the wrath of God by cleansing the name of Christianity from the clutches of this villain. Therefore, Geronimus is to be taken to Seals Island, which has been prepared for the execution of justice where he will be punished first by having both his hands removed, and after, hung on a cord until death follows. Furthermore, all of his goods, money, gold, silver, monthly wages, and all that he may have claim over here in the Indies, is to be confiscated by the VOC. So, he will have his hands chopped off, be hung to death, and the company is going to take all of his shit. We're not sure if it's a reasonable punishment, but we have no reference point, as we don't know of anybody who has committed the crimes that Geronimus has. After months of holding the power of life or death over all the survivors of the shipwreck in his hands, Geronimus himself is now going to die. This man who has wielded almost godlike authority is finally to face the consequences of of his own twisted actions. He has, until now, justified his own behaviour by his rejection of the ideas of heaven and hell. But now, facing his own mortality square in the face, Geronimus suddenly has a change of heart. He begs that he be allowed to be baptised so that he could, meanwhile, be given time to think about his sins. Bewail them, and so die in peace and repentance. Everyone can see that his request is just a cynical attempt to extend his life. But still, the council members look at each other, and then they all turn to the Predicant. This poor man, whose wife and six of his children had been brutally murdered on the orders of Geronimus who had then orchestrated the marriage of his only surviving daughter to a murderer, who then proceeded to rape her daily, this man must now decide whether or not Geronimus's soul should be given the chance to be saved. We would forgive him for wanting just a little bit of revenge and telling Geronimus where he can stick his newfound Christian zeal. The Predicant, however... Simply nods his head. Geronimus would be brought to justice in this world. Bastianson so obviously decided that it wasn't up to him to decide what happens to the sociopathic undermerchant in the next. Along with Geronimus, seven other mutineers are also condemned to death. As their names and crimes are read out, we are reminded of each and every horrible act these people inflicted on all the other survivors. All the men, women, and children who had been murdered. The Predicants family, the sick, the people on Seals Island. The 125 people who had needlessly died at the hands of these brutes. Not to forget, all the women who had been forced to sign an oath of obedience to the mutineers, who then had been brutally and repeatedly raped by them over the course of months. As each name is spoken, we feel... Not quite happiness or relief, but, well, a sense of nothingness, really. We just wish we weren't here anymore. What good will the execution of these men do for the ones who they have killed, or the women that have been brutalized, or for any of us? We suppose that at least some kind of justice is being done for the many weeks of hell we've all just been through. But then we hear the name... Jan Pelgrim. Our heart begins to beat a little bit faster, our palms clam up, and we get a tingling on the back of our neck as we wait to hear his fate. He had been our best friend. We'd spent so many long months on board the Batavia, sharing stories, playing tic-tac, literally scratching each other's backs. Before he came at us one dark night with a knife after pledging allegiance to Geronimus. Still, it feels so bloody strange now to hear him being convicted of behaving in what Pelsart says was a godless manner, in words and deeds, more fitting to a beast than a man. Jan had murdered two people, assisted in another murder, and also had carnal knowledge of three married women. He is spared from having his hands chopped off, but he too will be punished on the gallows to hang on a cord, until death shall follow. We know that Yarn deserves his punishment, but we still feel absolutely horrible when he breaks down and weeps as his fate is formalized. On Sunday morning, we make our way to the beach to attend the Predicant's service. Since he had escaped from the clutches of Geronimus' gang, the Predicant had begun preaching again. We've pretty much given up on the idea of God Having been through such a terrible ordeal, but there's not much else to do on these islands. Plus, we are curious to see the spectacle of Geronimus's baptism. When we arrive, the people gathering are also buzzing as they all excitedly share information about the latest rumour spreading around the camp. Apparently, having learned that Pelsart intended to have him executed on Monday morning, Geronimus had flown into a rage, about how unfair this was, how he'd not been given enough time to repent for his sins, and that he was certain a miracle from God would strike him down so that he shall not be hanged. Lo and behold, last night, Geronimus was violently ill after having apparently taken some poison in an attempt to end his own life. Unfortunately for him, he hadn't taken enough, So instead of dying, he just spent the night projectile vomiting and having explosive diarrhea. When this news is announced, we are standing close enough to the commander to hear him comment, seems his so-called miracle is working from below as well as from above, and chuckle to himself at his little joke. But now Geronimus was refusing to come to the baptism and had seemingly reverted to his old belief that everything he'd done had been an act of God. We are disappointed that we won't get to see the baptism, as that would have been bizarre to the extreme, and we may as well rack up one more weird experience. But once we hear that it's not happening, we realize that we just can't wait for Monday morning to see this guy die, and then maybe, hopefully, this will all be over. On Monday, it seems like maybe there is a God, and maybe he is listening to Geronimus. As a storm passes over the island, bringing rain, wind, and waves, making it way too treacherous to ferry the condemned to Seals Island for their executions. The next morning, however, Tuesday, October 2nd, God has clearly become distracted by something else, and we see the wind die down and the swells calm. So Geronimus, Jan Pelgrim, and the six other condemned men are loaded onto a boat and rowed across the channel to Seal's Island. We arrive at the island an hour in advance of the executions, with a boatload of other survivors who wish to see these men pay for their crimes. On the journey across, we sit opposite Lucretia Yarns. We can scarcely recognize her. Her hair has lost its golden shine, her cheeks are hollow, and she no longer walks with the confidence and the grace with which she had once done. Her eyes, however, are flashing, and there is certainly still strength in there. For the previous two months, she has been forced to sleep in Geronimus' tent where he had repeatedly raped her. Lucretia, it seems to us, cannot wait to see him dangling from that cord. Geronimus and the others are marched to the gallows. In their last few moments, Geronimus' gang, faced with their fate, they together turn on their former Captain General, and as one, they rage at him, yelling insults and curses. Then they turn to Pelsart and they beg for him to kill Geronimus first, so that their eyes could see that he does, in fact, die. Pelsart has no problem with this, so Geronimus is led to the base of the gallows. The rest of the condemned men shout revenge at him, and he hisses profanity straight back in their faces. Geronimus still portrays some of his former coolness, and he doesn't struggle so much, except for his eyes, which are as wild as can be. He is forced to his knees, and his hands are strapped to a wooden stump in front of him. A sailor steps forward with a giant sword and waits, poised as Pelsart re-reads the council's judgement. As soon as he is finished, the sailor heaves the sword over his head and without hesitation brings it down swiftly. What strikes us is the overwhelming silence of the scene. For just a brief moment, the wind that usually gales constantly through the Ebrolius, it stops, and there is not a peep from the attendant crowd who all stare on intently. But then, suddenly, the sound returns, and everything is extra loud. The sound of Geronimus' bones shattering, followed by that of the dull thump as his hands fall uselessly onto the soft sand, they are then punctuated by the loudest sound of them all. The high-pitched wail that streams from Geronimus' mouth, for the first time he is totally stricken, any of the poise and charm that facilitated his manipulations. He is also, for the first time, stricken of any hands. He kneels before the crowd, still screaming and staring down with wide-eyed horror at the bloody stumps before him. A sickening shower of blood is spurting from his wrists and adding the final touch to what is, even after everything we've seen, a gruesome sight. We cringe at it all. Standing next to us, though, we see Lucretia Yarns, eyes transfixed, smiling for the first time in months, as her torturer wails in agony. The executioner quickly puts a noose around Geronimus' neck and leads him stumbling and trailing blood to the gallows, where he is made to stand on a stool. As he is being helped onto it, he has stopped screaming and he discovers the very last of any defiance that remains within him. He yells out to Pelsart and the ship's council, I will seek justice with you before God's judgment seat, because I have not been able to get it here on earth. The last word is barely out of his mouth, before the sailor come executioner kicks the stool out from under his feet. His body falls and his neck snaps, and his face takes on its final contorted grimace as his heart beats for the final time. The wind has returned now, and his body begins to sway, blood still dripping from where his hands used to be. The sands of Hauptmann's Abroius thirstily drink the circles of blood that form underneath the body of Geronimus Cornelison. The rest of the executions happen in quick succession. With their last words, some of the men confessed to even more murders than the ones that they had been convicted of. Others warned the crowd to watch out on the ship back because so many more mutineers remain alive and they will seize control at any opportunity. This is very perturbing and a total mindfuck for everyone who hears it. The crowd had greatly enjoyed watching Geronimus die, but as the executions go on, we can feel the enthusiasm drop as everybody begins to feel queasy from the smell of blood and loosened bowels. Plus, even staring at the view of the horizon is better than the awful sight in front of us. Finally, with seven bodies hanging from the gallows pole, the last name is read out. It is Jan Pelgrim. He is in an absolute state by now, weeping, screaming and begging for mercy. He looks like a lost child, as tears run down his red cheeks and his voice cracks with every word. He looks at the crowd, at Pelsart, at the council, but his eyes avoid ours as he struggles against the two big sailors leading him to the stool at the base of the scaffolding. I am only 18 years old, I have barely lived, he cries. The noose, however, is tied around his neck and the men who had been holding him step away, as the rope is then pulled taut. Jan pleads, please put me on an island and leave me there so that I may live just a little longer. The executioner takes one last look at Pelsart. The upper merchant blinks. Then he looks at the ground. And then he actually waves the executioner down. Perhaps Pelsart wasn't as accustomed to seeing death up close as those of us who had been left behind in Geronimus' care. At any rate, he seems to have seen enough of it this morning, and our mate Yarn Pelgrim is going to live to see another day. As he is led away, his eyes finally meet ours, and they reflect shame, guilt, but also total relief that he has somehow escaped the punishment that he almost certainly deserves. Now that the executions have been carried out, we walk away with a small group of survivors back towards a yawl which will ferry us to Batavia's graveyard. Some people crack jokes about how the dead men shout themselves as they hung from the pole, others mock Jan Pelgrim's theatrics, and they grumble and curse that he too wasn't put to death. Lucretia Yarns walks silently, still looking pale and meek, but she is standing slightly taller than before, and that little smile still hasn't left her face. We mostly just feel numb about everything that has happened, and cannot wait to finally get off these fucking islands. But Pelsart has different ideas, of course. The bad weather which seems to constantly plague this area has made the salvage operations at the wreck very difficult. Pelsart is obsessed with picking the corpse of Batavia clean of every last scrap of valuable material, knowing full well that... For every barrel, bottle, gun, coin, chest, or cannon that he can retrieve, a small part of his battered reputation will be restored in the eyes of his masters at the VOC. And so we stay, working day after day for another ten days, tirelessly rowing teams of divers to and from the site of the wreck. On one expedition, we go with a group of fishermen to a site near the wreck, to collect food for the evening meal. One of the fishermen, with keen eyes, notices a barrel of vinegar lying on the reef. Personally, we are so done with being here that we would rather just ignore the barrel of vinegar and leave it behind. The fisherman, however, insists on declaring his findings to Pelsat as soon as we return from fishing, probably trying to suck up to the upper merchant for whatever reason. Pelsart listens very intently to the fisherman. then he orders the skipper of the Zardarm, as well as two of his best sailors, plus two of the men that we had fought next to on Hazes islands, out to retrieve the sunken vinegar. And so, they head off in one of the Zardarm's yawls, but they never return. A storm blows in shortly after they set out, and after we lose sight of them, We simply never recover it. For the next two days, we wait, as the storm rages over the Ebrolyus. Mournfully, people continue to look out to the horizon, hoping to catch just a glimpse of the little yawl making its way back to Batavia's graveyard. We wait. And we wait. And after two weeks of waiting and hoping, the ship's council declares... That they must have perished in the storm. So it is that another five lives are lost. Two of those men had survived the shipwreck, the abandonment, and the war between Geronimus's gang and the rest of us survivors. We had lived with them, fought by them, and more importantly, survived together with them. And now they too are dead. Not through accident or murder, but purely because of Pelsart's greed in pursuing a barrel of sunken vinegar. Finally, on the 13th of November, the Council of the Zardarm called everyone together on Batavia's graveyard and declared that the salvage operation is complete. We will leave the Ebrolyas and sail for Fort Batavia tomorrow. In addition, those mutineers who weren't sentenced to immediate death are to finally face their punishment. So it is that several of Geronimus' gang are rowed to the Zadar to be keelhauled, a uniquely Dutch form of naval punishment, whereby a long rope is swung underneath the ship from port to starboard. The perpetrator is then tied with their hands behind their back, thrown overboard, which breaks their shoulders, before being dragged along the bottom of the ship, stripping them of much of their skin, often maiming and sometimes killing them. Others are to be dropped from the mast, with their hands tied behind them, before being lashed a hundred times. One of these men is Salomon de Champs, the scribe. This guy had helped orchestrate the bureaucratic nightmare of Geronimus' oaths of loyalty, and then after being caught by Pelsard, had literally transcribed his own punishment, and even signed it. Oh well, at least it was all official. It's an interesting and bizarre sight, actually watching him walk gingerly back to Pelsart's side, soaking wet and bleeding profusely from the raised lash marks on his back, to sign the document showing that his punishment had taken place. Afterwards, he retakes his place on the ship's council. Another man to be punished is Walter Loos, the guy who had been elected leader of the mutineers after Geronimus' capture. Loos was clever and he knew that if he was to return to Fort Batavia, he would almost certainly be executed upon arrival by the authorities of the VOC. Like Pelsart, he figured that his only chance of survival was to make himself in some way useful to the company. So, having learned that Jan Pelgrim had managed to have his life spared by begging to be dropped off on an island, Valder Lowe's convinces the Council that he and Jan could serve the VOC together by being left on Het Land. Since no Dutch explorers really knew anything about the interior or the inhabitants of that great continent, the two of them could go explore, and live with locals there in an effort to learn whatever they could from them, plus find potential ways to trade with them. Any ships that passed by the area could keep an eye out for them, so if they managed to find trading opportunities, they could signal the ships, and thus be rescued with redemption. Genius idea, that, aligning his survival with the prospect of profit to the VOC paymasters. The Council sees the sense in this proposal, so declares that, as soon as possible, the Zadam would leave the Ebrolyos for Het Land, where we will leave Jan Pelgrim and Walter Loos behind, before returning to Fort Batavia. Finally, We are going to leave this place of horror. Early the next morning, nearly a full year after becoming a sailor for the VOC, we sail away from the Hauptmanns of and the wreck of the once mighty ship Batavia. We head east-northeast towards the giant dry continent. It takes two days, heading up the coast, before Pelsat identifies a cove where previously, he and the captain had thought to search for water during their first expedition in the longboat, but had been prevented from doing so by a storm. Pelsart sends a yawl to establish the landing, and they return with confirmations that both Jan Pelgrim, and Valterloz can be dropped off there. Apparently, they had also seen some footprints in the sand, but no other sign of human activity. And so the two delinquents as Pelsart addresses them, are provided with quite a reasonable stock of supply. As they are loaded onto the yawl, and rowed off towards the mainland, we look out at our former mate-slash-attempted murderer, Little Yarn Pelgrim, who could play a mean game of tic-tac, despite all his many faults. Faults like... actually being a raging nutcase. When the yawl returns, we raise anchor immediately. As our sails pick up the wind, and we once again begin to move north, now towards the fortress at Batavia, we only have a few minutes to get one last look at the now tiny figure of Jan Pelgrim. We are sad. Jan is small, vulnerable, and impressionable, and so he easily succumbs to the perceived aura of authority that Geronimus managed to create around himself. This teenager gave himself so completely to the authority of Geronimus that he had had no issue with violently ignoring or going against the other perceived authority in his life, that of the VOC, his actual employer, and this company that is both a profit-driven behemoth as well as a reflection of the 17th century Calvinist republic that has produced it as well as the parameters of all the social norms, moral codes, structures and conventions included within that society. In the game of power and authority, Jan played and Jan lost. As a result, he and Walter Loves have just become the first European settlers on the continent that will become the country of Australia. Who knows what will happen to them? Possibly, they will survive, and make contact with the local populations. Possibly, there may also be speculation in hundreds of years about reports of blue-eyed aborigines from that area. What they certainly never will do, is set up a prosperous trading station for the VOC. As we catch our last glimpse of Yarn, standing abandoned on that foreign, isolated beach in that vast, hot, and dry land, doubtless filled with all sorts of creatures that we cannot even imagine. We are sure that he faces a more unusual and testing future than possibly any European before him. His thoughts must be astir, with all sorts of anxieties about everything that lays before him. Should he survive, he will have plenty of time to consider all of this, everything that's brought him here, but we are quite sure that the last thing on his mind at this moment are contemplations about power, authority, and what it means to stand up for and against them. And so it is, ladies and gentlemen, beautiful and adoring fans, that we find ourselves at the end of the story of the unfortunate voyage of the Batavia. If you're thinking to yourself, what just happened? And what did it all mean? Then fear not. Unlike Pelsart, we would not abandon you to this dry archipelago of confusion, as we will be back next episode and be having ourselves some serious contemplations about power and authority. We will discuss the sources of this story, where we filled in blanks with color and why, and generally try to figure out how such a batshit crazy situation as this could possibly have occurred? What does it all mean for our understandings of authority, resistance and rebellion to authority? Make sure you join us next time to find out in our final episode of the series, The Unfortunate Voyage of the Batavia. We want to send out a big thanks to everyone for tuning in. We don't know how many people were waiting patiently for this episode, but we know there is at least one. Thanks for putting up with our consistent irregularity over the last month or so. A massive, HUGE thanks goes out also to Dean Cheves, aka Diplomaticon, for donating to our efforts here at Stuff What You Tell Me. If you want to be like Dean, then too bad, there is in our hearts now only one Dean Cheves, even though we are not 100% sure on how to pronounce his last name. Chevers, Chevers. However, we do have a lot of room in our hearts, and there are many ways in. Dean, use the PayPal donation button on our website, www.stuffwhatyoutellme.com. Patreon is another nice big door into our hearts. But really, you can also just sneak into our hearts through, like, the bathroom window by subscribing, telling your friends, family and that strange dude out on the street. You can do it by liking our stuff on Facebook, writing us reviews, and leaving lots of stars for us on iTunes, Stitcher, Scrunch, or whatever, wherever, whenever. We think rebellion is a fundamental part of human societies. Our efforts to explore it are an attempt to understand its role, and to learn from how rebellion and resistance have contributed to shaping our modern world in history, art, and culture. This is Stuff What You Tell Me, 9 out of every 10 taxidermists recommend saying stuff you